Hello and welcome to episode 23 of Paper Review, where I review the papers and big headlines of the week and place events and headlines in a due context in a weekly podcast. And I'm going to start this week with an article here about migration and the European Union. This is in the Express. EU was on the verge of collapse and it's our fault because of migration, says EC boss. Franz Timmermans sent the shock warning to European Union colleagues declaring the bloc was on the brink and that the unthinkable has become possible. The first vice president of the European Commission standing in for his boss Jean-Claude Juncker, launched a devastatingly honest speech attacking the EU's handling of migration and warned the breakup of the bloc was now a realistic prospect. Following on from Dutch Prime Minister Mark Rutte's demand for action, Mr Timmermans said the unthinkable has become possible. Who five years ago would have said the European Union could break up and disintegrate? Nobody. It was gratuitous to attack the European Union and its institutions because they were unbreakable. The article goes on. The senior EU official put the migration crisis at the heart of the bloc's troubles. He added, the European Union is not unbreakable. Something that is breakable is extremely valuable. What is the issue that has brought the European Union to the brink? The issue of migration. This issue has played a key role in all of our member states, wherever we are. Only we, as the European Union, can convince our citizens that we do have an answer to this. Not denying migration, not pretending you can solve it by building fences and walls, not pretending we can solve it by letting everybody in. We understand that we need a comprehensive approach to the migration issue, and only at European level would this comprehensive approach be valuable and work. If we cannot convince our member states and citizens of that, then we will be in the same situation as the Dutch citizens were in 1581. The article goes on. The EU has been threatening to tear itself apart over migration with Italy, Spain, France and Brussels all at loggerheads over potential answers to a fresh crisis. Nations are starting to rebel against Jean-Claude Juncker's plans to include more funding for refugees in the EU's next budget, mainly from Italy's new coalition government of Liga and the Five Star Movement. Tensions reached a fever pitch when Matteo Salvini, Rome's new interior minister and deputy prime minister, blocked a ship carrying 630 migrants, including seven pregnant women, stranded in the Mediterranean. With Malta also refusing to accept the Aquarius vessel operated by the charities Medicine, Sans Frontiers and Sans Mediterranean, Spain's new Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez instructed port officials to welcome the ship into Valencia. Hungary's praise for Italy's rejection of the stranded migrants comes as another sign of the EU's growing division over how to handle a future immigration crisis like that of 2015. That's the point there, because places like Hungary and other places in Europe are refusing migrants, because they can see where that's going. Yesterday, European Commissioner Dimitris Avramopoulos warned Brussels the bloc cannot afford another repetition in 2015. The EU's Migration and Home Affairs Chief said member states must share in the responsibility because it is the migration crisis that has put in danger the European project. Speaking to reporters after unveiling the EU's plan to triple funding to defend its external borders, the Greek Commissioner said, our work is not over and it will not be any time soon. We have to be prepared because we cannot afford another repetition in 2015, neither politically nor financially. We shouldn't allow migration to be a divisive element among us because unfortunately some positions taken by political parties and some governments are very worrying. Not for the future of our migration policy, but for the future of our common European home. Because finally, it is the migration crisis that has put in danger the European project, so it's a question not only of political responsibility, but of historic responsibility for everyone to take part in our common effort to share the responsibility to achieve our goal. There's another article here about migration. This is in the sun. I'm not going to read all of it, but this is what it says. Merkel prepares for the worst. This is not about whether Mrs. Merkel stays as Chancellor next week or not, said Javier Patel, Luxembourg's Prime Minister, as he came out of an emergency summit on immigration last weekend. He was joking. That was exactly what the meeting had been about, and everybody there knew it. The summit was Operation Save Muti. 
Their mission to stop Merkel's government collapsing by thrashing out a tough stance on immigration to calmer critics. It's quite the turnaround. Once Merkel, with her open door refugee policy, was Queen of Europe, now she's a beggar. Well, at the political government level, Queen of Europe, anyway. Suddenly European politics has changed beyond recognition. The tide has turned. Those making the case for an open Europe are haunted and chastised. They are losing elections. Sebastian Kurz, Austria's young and energetic chancellor, has begun to talk about an axis of the willing between his country, Italy and Germany. Many in Merkel's centre-right Christian Democratic Union are tired of her centrist style of leadership and see Kurz as their hero. Earlier this month, Kurz staged a press conference with Horst Seehofer, Merkel's interior minister, coalition partner and chairman of the Christian Social Union Party. Seehofer now wants Germany to turn away migrants who do not have documents or who first apply for asylum in another EU country. Merkel has refused. If the decades-old CDU-CSU alliance ends over this issue, Merkel's government would collapse. Until recently, it was assumed that Merkel would last until the next election in three years' time. Now many are betting she won't even make it through the summer. There are two kinds of European solidarity now, the Merkel type and the Kurz type. To survive, Merkel must find a way to reconcile the two. Countries in Europe have already moved away from her refugee vision. Sweden, for example, reinstated border controls in 2015. Viktor Orban in Hungary and Jaroslav Kaczynski in Poland feel that their views on immigration have been vindicated, not just at home but across Europe, and why shouldn't they? They are winning the battle of ideas over border controls and openness. Slovakia and the Czech Republic now have leaders who complain about Muslim immigration. And he makes the point here that basically in France's elections, although Macron won, many voted for Marine Le Pen, who has the opposite view on migration to Merkel. The article goes on. Merkel's case for a common European policy on refugees seemed likely to prevail. But the elections in Italy and Austria changed all that. The balance of power keeps changing, shifting ever further from Merkel. The incoming Slovenian PM, Janos Jantza, is a migration hardliner and like others in the Balkan region, sees Europe's political future as being represented by Budapest rather than Berlin. So what to do? Merkel now stands as the charity case, not the power broker. And makes the point here that the odds on the new government in Italy taking in more refugees is slim. The article goes on. In Austria, Kurz is focusing on a plan to force refugees to apply for asylum before they enter the EU. Kurz's stance is unacceptable to Merkel. But can Merkel fight against it? If she wants to stay in power, she will need to be wary of those in her own CDU ranks who are closer to Seehofer. Whatever she now chooses to do will cause her reputation to crumble. If she fires Seehofer, it may be the end of the German centre-right as the party in charge. If she goes along with Austrian and Italian demands to turn back migrants, she will be admitting that her open door policy on migration killed her own vision of a welcoming Europe. She has run out of good options as well as political authority. She may limp on in Germany for a few more years, but her long reign in Europe has ended. Says Frederick Eriksson, who wrote this article. Frederick Eriksson is a Swedish economist and writer. A longer version of this article appears in the current issue of The Spectator. Well, I talked about migration in episodes 12 and 21, and I talked about how it connects into the Smart Cities Agenda and the United Nations Agenda 21, and what both of those are, which both fundamentally connect. So I won't repeat myself again, but one point to make about this story and this issue is that people think people in power try to do the best they can, and the reason things go wrong is because they don't know what they're doing and they make mistakes, or that they don't recognise that there is a problem, or that they don't care enough about the problem, or they should be there to show people what people don't realise, and this is why people keep voting in elections, because they believe the person they're voting for in their party has a much better idea of how to solve the problems caused by the current government. But as I keep saying, because there's no point trying to understand politics or world affairs or news stories or world events or current affairs without understanding this simple point, and that point is, 
society is agenda driven, not people driven. It's not about what's best for people, it's about how to advance the agenda. On one level, some people do see that politicians and political leaders are corrupt and just in it for themselves. Not necessarily all of them, there will be some who go into politics to make a change, but either politics changes them, or they're manipulated by people around them. But in many cases, they are focusing only on their own interests, and people can see that in many cases, but there's another step to take, and this clears the kaleidoscope, and that is that there's an agenda which has been worked towards for generations to re-image human society to one of total control, and in the end, the end of human as we know it. And when you know this agenda, and the techniques used to bring it into human society, then you can read news stories in a very different way, and you can see why things are happening behind the official mainstream narratives and explanations. You see, the difference between those people who know the agenda and those people who just think it's happening because of whatever reason they think it's happening is the difference between and, and the people seeing that's why they're doing this and people saying they're doing this, I think, because of what they're telling us they're doing it for or because I think it's that or because I think it's this. That's the difference. When you know the agenda, it clears the kaleidoscope and everything is in clarity. That's why I do pay-per-view. That's how I can do pay-per-view. If I didn't know the agenda, I'd be totally lost in understanding news stories. That's why many people are when they look at the world and society and they don't know why things are happening and why the world's going in the direction it's going. Because they don't know society is agenda-driven, not people-driven. They don't know what the agenda is and they don't know the techniques used to bring it into human society. When you do, everything makes sense. Article here about extremism. This is in the Daily Mail. Doctors have insisted they should not be forced to report patients or colleagues they suspect of having extremist ideologies to anti-terror chiefs. The government's anti-terror programme, Prevent, is too intrusive and is damaging trust between doctors and patients their union ruled. The British Medical Association believes Prevent leads to racial profiling and says doctors should be able to refuse to be drawn into this Orwellian world. Well, we're already in an Orwellian world, as I talk about considerably in episode 4. The only question is how much do we go into that Orwellian world? The article goes on. Others argue that reporting suspicions is a vital tool in the fight against terrorism. Dr Jackie Appleby of Tower Hamlets in East London told the BMA's annual conference yesterday we should strenuously defend our multicultural society which enriches us all. Prevent makes us suspicious of each other, sows fear and hatred, causes racial profiling and does not work. Doctors' relationships rely on the antithesis of this. We depend on building trust. The article goes on. The NHS has been responsible for helping to prevent terrorism since 2011 when Department of Health Policy framed Prevent as a safeguarding measure. Since then, efforts have been made to train doctors and other health professionals to spot the signs of radicalisation. In 2015, the Prevent Statutory Duty under the Counterterrorism and Security Act was made a statutory responsibility for the health sector. It stated that the sector needed to demonstrate due regard to the need to prevent people from being drawn into terrorism. But the motion, which was passed at the Union's conference in Brighton yesterday, called on the BMA to support all members who refused to take part in the PREVENT programme. Dr Colonel Glyn Evans of BMA's Armed Forces Committee told the meeting that doctors had a part to play in protecting people. Speaking against the motion, he said, We heard some emotive rhetoric there. I would like to put a bit of objectivity into this. This is about the objective policy that keeps all of us safe and is by and large working. Please do not pull the plug on this because of your emotions. 
The article goes on. Last year, a spate of terror attacks in London and Manchester left 36 dead. There have also been cases of NHS doctors who became extremists, either working as medics for Islamic State or plotting attacks. Issam Abuanza left his wife and two young daughters penniless in Sheffield when he fled to Syria in July 2014 to become a doctor for jihadis. Balao Abdullah was jailed for life in 2008 for plotting car bomb attacks in London and Glasgow the previous year. The Iraqi-born junior doctor attacked Glasgow airport in a jeep laden with petrol and gas canisters. His co-conspirator, Kafil Ahmed, died later from injuries sustained in the attack. Several days earlier, Abdullah had driven one of two homemade Mercedes car bombs, each packed with gas cylinders, petrol and nails into the West End of London, but they failed to explode. Commenting on the BMA motion, Tory MP Andrew Bridgen said, All of us have a responsibility and duty to our fellow citizens to be aware of extremism and report potential threats. Doctors should put the safety and security of the country and its people ahead of an individual patient. Well, this is another attack on freedom of speech. This is the non-violent extremism that David Cameron and Theresa May have talked about before, which is designed to target people questioning official narratives and explanations for world events. Changes in society and subjects like transgender and especially Zionism, revisionist Zionism, which political correctness says you can't talk about. This is not about protecting from terrorism. It's ultimately about the state operating as one unit to detect and stamp out any non-violent extremism and any hate speech, which is nothing more than exposing what authority doesn't want exposing. I featured a story in episode 16 about proposals for jail time for those caught communicating hate speech publicly, in other words, telling the truth. This is where we're going if we allow it. I go into some of the different ways that freedom of speech is being attacked in last week's episode. To pull this and the previous article together, I mentioned before an episode of a Channel 4 series, Electric Dreams, and all I can say after 10 years of research is whoever writes Electric Dreams knows what's going on. There's two episodes I recommend on the subjects in this and the article I read out previously. And they are the one I mentioned the first time, which is called Safe and Sound. And the other one is called Kill All Others. They're brilliant and they pull together what I've said about these two articles. I'll include the links to the episodes when I upload this episode. The idea behind this whole theme of non-violent extremism is to not target people who could groom others to be terrorists. It's not to target people who could incite violence and hatred is to target those who are exposing what the authority doesn't want exposed and also to label people as hate preachers and extremists so that people coming across them and their work for the first time will just see them as extremists and hate preachers and they won't actually bother to look at their work and what they're actually saying so it's an effort to discredit them but the fact that there's so many efforts to destroy freedom of speech is very encouraging in another way because it means that there is obviously enough of an impact from the information being communicated. Enough people are becoming aware of it that they have to do something about it. If it wasn't having an impact, they wouldn't waste their time trying to destroy freedom of speech. But the fact they are means that enough people are becoming aware of it. So it's very encouraging. The more people say what they don't want people saying, the more of a problem they'll have in trying to stop people saying what they don't want people saying. The only way to deal with these attacks on freedom of speech is to just keep saying these things anyway. That's how to preserve freedom of speech and therefore every other freedom. Change of subject now. Article here about money. This is in The Guardian. Teach primary school pupils about finance, say city firms. Leading city institutions, as in the city of London, the financial area, 
are urging the government to include financial education in the primary school curriculum after a pilot scheme found it helped young people learn to delay gratification and enjoy the benefits of saving. 20 of the UK's leading savings and investment firms have set up a financial education initiative called Kickstart Money to test the effectiveness of teaching primary school children about money management. The programme uses expert trainers from the charity MyBNK, as in my bank, to deliver three 75-minute workshops in primary schools. It aims to help children to understand the value of money, the difference between needs as opposed to wants and the benefits of saving. An independent evaluation of the impact of the programme found that 68% of those pupils who showed little capacity for delaying gratification initially did so at the end of the sessions. It also inspired a new enthusiasm for saving. That's an interesting point because we live in a world now where everything has to be instant, instant gratification, not least through technology and social media. The article goes on. Three months after taking part, 70% of pupils were working towards a saving goal, while teachers reported that 87% of their pupils understood that financial decisions had consequences. The children who took part also demonstrated an improved understanding of basic financial concepts, with a 43% increase in the number of pupils able to define habit, and a 67% increase in the number of pupils able to identify the correct description of budget. The findings will be presented to MPs and peers at Westminster on Thursday, where organisers will hope to persuade policymakers that teaching children about money management will lead to a more financially literate generation. According to Kickstart, behavioural attitudes to money are formed by the age of seven, yet two-thirds of parents don't talk to their children about money, and there is currently little financial education in primary schools. Jane Goodland, a responsible business director of the Wealth Management Group Quilter and co-chair of Kickstart, said politicians may believe that being competent with numbers equates to being good with money. While basic numeracy skills are helpful for budgeting and saving, many of our financial habits are in fact motivated by our attitudes and behaviours learned at a young age and not by our ability to do complex maths. The article goes on. The Kickstart programme will reach 18,000 pupils over three years. The city institutions involved include Prudential, Aviva, Old Mutual Wealth and Legal in general. Well, I think it's great that kids are being taught about money, handling money and saving money, because that's something in school that is actually practical and worth learning, that they'll actually need in the real world when they leave school, what we call the real world anyway. I talk about money in episode 5, and what kids should really be taught is that the system of money is based on computer figures called credit which have never existed and don't exist, and that those numbers typed on a computer screen then have interest charged on them. If people can't pay the mortgage or the bills at the end of the month, they lose their home or their energy supply and end up homeless potentially for not being able to pay back figures typed on a computer screen. When you go into a bank and take out a loan, the bank types into your account the amount of the loan and you then start paying back not just that amount but the interest as well. And if you can't pay it back, the banks take your real wealth that actually does exist your home, your business, your land. Paper money is no different. Another confidence trick. People get paper money to a very large extent from a cash point based on how much credit is in their account at the time of withdrawal. And it's just paper, so if you draw out £20, if that piece of paper was printed with the design of a £10 note, it would be worth £10 instead. And it starts off as a blank piece of paper. So we have people every day go into work to earn figures on a computer screen or a piece of paper, which is only what it's worth because that's the design that it's been printed with, but it could be printed with the design of another amount of money. The paper itself is worthless, it's just a piece of paper, it's just a design on a piece of paper, that's all it is. This is the ludicrous system of money that decides choice and livelihood for people. The interest that's charged on the money is not created, even as credit. 
So what that means is there's never ever enough money in circulation to pay back the original amount and the non-existent interest. People losing their homes, businesses and land is built into the system. Where does credit come from in the beginning? The banks. Who creates interest? The banks. Who wants this non-existent money paid back to them? The banks. Who owns the banks in a global financial system? The global elite. It's all a massive contract to make sure that the global elite can parasite the money from the people who've actually put the effort in to work, to earn that money in the first place. Often, in many cases, working for corporations that the elite own in the first place as well. And it's also about keeping people in servitude and focused on surviving another day, another week, another month, so they don't look up and see what's really going on. Also, if you want to create a Hunger Games society, which I talk about in episode four, you've got to have a means of defining who is on the top and who's on the bottom of society in the Hunger Games society structure, and that's where money comes in. So what school should really teach kids about money is that they go to school to be programmed with a perception and perspective for the world, self and reality that suits the global elite and their agenda and also to memorise information they're told to swallow as fact and repeat it on an exam paper to get good results, to get a good job, so they can be screwed by this system called money for their entire lives and be so focused on survival because of this system that they continue the cogs in a machine we call human society, which contributes, when you take an overview, to the continuation of the elite's agenda. That's the system of money. subject again now article here about schools this is in the independent schools fuel mental health crisis by isolating children in harsh consequences booths and ministers warned the department for education is being urged to investigate draconian punishment policies introduced by some academy change which an mp protested would be banned in any workplace of course it bloody would paul williams who is also a gp said parents in his constituency were angry and alarmed by the practices reporting that children were suffering growing anxiety and nightmares in some cases they were confined in small booths for up to seven hours for accumulated minor offenses including forgetting a pen and making a paper airplane looking out of a window and sucking on a mint the booths have walls on three sides, like the setup of visiting a prison, with children ordered to look straight ahead, avoid tapping or sighing, and limited to three toilet visits during the day. They're there for up to seven hours. A teachers' union echoed the MP's fears that children with existing mental disorders were being caught up in the crackdowns, while campaigners against academies so the worst cases verge on child abuse. No, they are child abuse. Dr Williams, the MP for Stockton South, has demanded a meeting with the school's minister describing the consequences abuse as a threat to mental health. I would never treat people who work for me like that and parents who are contacting me don't want their children to be treated that way, he told the Independent. He goes on to say that parents have told me that their children are developing mental health problems as a result of the knowledge that they will be kept in these consequences booths. They are suffering nightmares and anxiety. We know we already have a crisis of mental health problems among young people. Schools should be giving those people support, but this policy is doing the reverse, he said. The article goes on. Among the academies that operate the booth in Stockton South is Ingleby Manor, a 200-pupil secondary run by the Delta Academies Trust. Lisa Clarkson, a mother of two children at the school, said the punishments can escalate so quickly so even the best-behaved children are finding themselves in these booths. Well, if even the best-behaved children are finding themselves in these booths, so what must it be like for the worst-behaved children? The article goes on. 
These schools seem to be a law unto themselves, she said. I can't believe they have got away with, with sitting children in a confined space for up to seven hours. How many hours of lost education is not reported or monitored? Children are not being actively taught in these hours. The article goes on. The Independent asked Ingleby Manor to respond to the criticisms made but received no response by the time of publication. The National Education Union also criticised any punishments that ended up ridiculing children or causing them physical discomfort. Rosamund McNeil, its Assistant General Secretary, said, Often when children are misbehaving, a masks frustration with schoolwork, difficulties at home or emotional needs. Children with special needs such as autism or behavioural difficulties can get caught up in behaviour systems if the school isn't given the specialist support they need from local agencies. And Alistair Smith, the National Secretary of the Anti-Academies Alliance, said the freedoms given to academies had led to policies based on personal whims or prejudice rather than evidence. They are likely to hit the most vulnerable and can contribute to mental health problems, he said. Yet some academies ignore this and use extreme policies which, in the worst cases, verge on child abuse. This needs to stop. Nick Gibb, the school's minister, told Dr Williams he would be very happy to meet him to discuss the controversy when it was raised during education questions in the Commons. There's an article here on wakingtimes.com who do some good articles. The new preschool system is crushing kids and making them hate learning. According to a new study out of the University of Virginia, academic pressures of the United States educational initiatives, such as No Child Left Behind and Common Core, Common Core was an Obama initiative, have transformed kindergarten away from the much-needed focus on early social skills, play-based learning and other creative activities into a rigid, taxing environment with far too much attention placed on academics and direct instruction. I talk about education in episodes 15 and 21 and why there is always an effort to veer away from creative subjects in favour of more academic subjects. The article goes on. The study's researchers, Daphne Bassock, Scott Latham and Anna Roram, compared kindergarten classrooms between 1998 and 2010 using two large nationally representative data sets. The aspects analysed included teachers' expectations, time spent on academic versus non-academic content, classroom organisation and standardised testing. Their assessment revealed that the experience in kindergarten has changed dramatically. It says in the study, kindergarten teachers in the later period held far higher academic expectations for children both prior to kindergarten entry and during the kindergarten year. They devote more time to advanced literacy and math content, teacher-directed instruction and assessment, and substantially less time to art, music, science and child-selected activities. And the study is called, Is Kindergarten the New First Grade? The study by Basok et al. uncovered that kindergarten literacy rates increased from 30% in 1998 to 80% in 2010. Of course, it's a beautiful thing when a child learns to read, but are American children being driven to their detriment? The researchers think so. They concluded that kindergarten, which used to be a gentle way to help introduce children to school, now serves more as a gatekeeper which indoctrinates children into the pressured life of the student. Well, I've said before that education is there to indoctrinate young people with a view of the world and self and reality that suits the elite in their agenda. The article goes on. 
Young children, even in preschool, are expected to sit at desks for longer and longer periods and use pencil and paper, even though many of them lack the attention span or motor skills to be successful. But it's not about what's best for the kids, it's about giving them a perception of how things are, and I'll explain what I mean by that in a minute. The article goes on. Failure, even at this young age, can earn the children the label attention deficit disorder, and even in some cases can be held back having to spend an extra year in kindergarten. Well, I've said before that attention deficit disorder is, in some cases, the effects of artificial sweeteners and chemicals in food and drink, especially that aimed at the young, sweet food and drink, and one of the main ones is aspartame, but there's others as well. Other times it's just kids being bored by what they're being asked to do, but if you can label young people with a the disorder, then the next stage taken by many parents is to take them to a child psychologist who, in many cases, will give them drugs. And I've said before, there's an agenda to drug children and young people in universities. As I talk about in episode three, students will go to a guidance counsellor or whatever they happen to be called in the university. And it could be over something as simple as pressure of coursework or maybe a relationship is broken up or they feel they're having problems with a certain course. As their consultation goes on over a period of time, they'll be prescribed drugs. And I've talked about how that plays a role in creating the generation snowflake mentality. It's not the only cause of it, but it's one of them. The article goes on. This undue accountability and pressure placed on children as young as five and six years old is making them frightened of making mistakes and of being wrong. This limits their future willingness to be creative and come up with original ideas because they may not be right. That's exactly the idea. The article goes on. A growing group of educators and parents in the US are becoming increasingly frustrated by the Common Core education programs and too much focus on academics and standardized testing. Some believe that the initiative is actually dummy down children, leaving students unprepared to do college level work and putting pressure on colleges to lower their academic standards. Peter Wood, the president of the National Association of Scholars, says Common Core pretended that it was going to be raising standards, but what it did in fact is put enormous pressure on colleges, many of which are now succumbing to that pressure to lower their standards. The article goes on. Kindergartens in the US are also subject to Common Core guidelines, creating more emphasis on seat work and relying on tightly scripted teaching and direct instruction. The effect may be higher literacy and math competences at an early age, but these initiatives are also making children less inquisitive, less creative, less individualized, less confident and less engaged in the long term. Well, that reminds me of a study I came across talking about the personality changes and changes in perception as children go through school. And all of it was about the limitation of perception and creativity and stimulating the left side of the brain at the expense of the right side of the brain because they both have very different roles to play in terms of perception. The article goes on. Another study out of Vanderbilt University took a look at how academically driven preschoolers who participated in a voluntary pre-kindergarten program called TNVPK compared to a control group of children that had gone through a more traditional preschool. The study revealed that by the end of kindergarten, there were no longer any significant differences between the children from both groups. Over the following two years, the differences between the two groups became more noticeable. And a study titled A Randomized Controlled Trial of a Statewide Voluntary Pre-Kindergarten Program on Children's Skills and Behaviors through Third Grade says, First grade teachers rated the TNVPK children as less well prepared for school, having poorer work skills in the classrooms and feeling more negative about school. In second grade, however, the groups began to diverge with the TNVPK children, scoring lower than the controlled children in most of the measures. 
The differences were significant on both achievement and composite measures and on the math subtests. The article goes on. The more intense focus on academics at an early age, repetitive teaching methods and subjugation of children to the same insipid tasks year after year is killing their enthusiasm for learning. Too wrapped up in the hyper-competitive world, parents and educators are allowing for an environment that is putting undue stress and pressure on youngsters. According to Yale professor Edward Ziegler, a leader in child development and early education policy, what young children really need is more opportunities to use and hear complex language in a curriculum that includes social and emotional skills and active learning. And there's an article here in the Oxford Mail from May 2016. Primary school pupils to get help from trained mental health staff. Primary school children in Oxfordshire, in Britain, are set to get help from mental health professionals based in their schools. A pilot scheme will see the trained staff attend three primary schools in Oxfordshire from September, with the potential for the programme to be rolled out across the county. It comes after campaigners said more needed to be done to help pupils in Oxfordshire with mental health problems as well. More needs to be done across the country to help pupils in school with mental health problems. Experts said a combination of modern pressures on children and a decreasing taboo around mental illness meant more pupils were being identified as suffering and from a younger age. Windmill Primary School head teacher Lynn Knapp said she had seen evidence of primary age children self-harming and that mental health issues were more prominent than ever before. She said there were more demands on children such as curriculum demands and attainment pressures. More parents are working. There are less opportunities to talk to them at home and children are more likely to be in school from 7.30am to 5.30pm. You might see that children are withdrawn. We have had the odd child who was self-hard. We have children whose behaviour changes. We see it across all age groups. We need more access to services quicker. Things take so long. We could refer a child and it could be weeks or months before they see someone, she said. The article goes on. In October 2014, the Oxford Health NHS Foundation Trust started a scheme which led to mental health professionals being placed in secondary schools. They are now based in 26 of the country's secondary schools and the primary scheme will follow a similar pattern. Oxford Health spokesman Chris Kearney said, These specially trained mental health professionals provide direct care to young people within a school setting, offering therapy and support and working consultation with broader pastoral care teams to ensure young people's emotional needs are met. As part of the service we offer to schools, there was also a telephone consultation line open to teachers and other professionals where they can call and speak with a mental health professional and get advice. He said the pilot primary school scheme would start on September the 17th. Earlier this month, a think tank, the Institute for Public Policy Research, said schools faced a perfect storm of mental health problems and that early intervention should be a government priority. It claimed schools often lacked funding and internal expertise and that there was an inconsistent quality of mental health support available. Yeah, because schools are not meant to be there to help kids with mental health problems in the first place. The article goes on. Martin Reilly, chief executive of Oxford Mental Health Charity Restore, said the earlier you can intervene and support someone, the more likely it is that they can recover faster. The earlier we can educate people on mental illness, the greater the likelihood we have of reducing the number of children with mental illness in this country. Dr. Mina Fazel from the University of Oxford Department of Psychiatry was involved in the launch of the secondary school scheme in 2014. She said, although mental illness is highly stigmatised, that is improving and that means more people are accessing services. But secondly, if you look around society now, we understand the risks to developing mental illness are increasing, such as social, economic deprivation and austerity. There is also the strains of social media as well. It provides a lot of support for people. There is a lot of useful support in terms of mental health. What we're looking at here, especially going back to the first article, is preparation. Schools are prisons, but they're prisons for a reason. 
the idea is to get kids used to the idea of being subordinate to authority in a routine, machine, mechanical, surveilled life and to see that as just how things are in life. The earlier you get kids into this system, the more chance you have of them seeing life in this way for life. It's all programming. School is not just there to program a certain perception of the world and self through history, science, etc. Although it is there to do that. It's also there to program a sense of how things are. It's there to program a sense of what life is for life. I mentioned last week a meme I saw which talks about what kids actually learn from school, what they really take with them after leaving school, and it says, one, truth comes from authority. Phrased another way, it might say, the system, in other words, academia, education, mainstream media, the establishment basically, mainstream science, mainstream history, authority, government, etc. The system knows best and is always right. If it's from an official source, it must be true. Two, intelligence is the ability to remember and repeat. What we call cleverness in many cases is memorizing either false information or true but irrelevant information to real life and repeating it on an exam paper or in a piece of coursework to get the good result to confirm your level of programming. It's interesting that in university you get degrees where there are degrees of programming to a large extent. Three, accurate memory and repetition are rewarded. That's what I just said. Four, non-compliance is punished. Five, conform intellectually and socially. I've just seen a meme here that I've come across as I was looking at the what school really teaches children mean. And it says the idea that school teaches children how to live in the real world is absolutely insane. When children go to school, they go to a fake society in a large metal box. They are separated completely from the real world and have to conform to the societal and the social norms of said school. That's a good point there because kids think they're being taught about the real world. But one, how many times do people question what they're taught in school, in school, never mind, outside of it, and two, therefore many kids don't know if what they're being taught is true or not unless they ask others about it outside of school. It's all about indoctrination, not education. This meme goes on. They then spend all day being told what to do, when to do it, how to do it, where to do it, and how long to do it for. They have to ask permission to simply go to the bathroom, or toilet as we would call it in Britain, and have to respond to a bell every time it rings. There is very little to no freedom. They also spend all day, every day, with 25 or more people exactly their own age. That's absolutely brilliant. I don't know who wrote it, but it's brilliant. Because school is all about programming sense of how things are. This is why people older have a chance to point out to younger people that it wasn't always like this. The world wasn't always as it is now, and school wasn't always as it is now. And school is just preparation for what we call the real world, which is the insane asylum we call human society and planet Earth. And when you look at that meme of what school teaches children, it's exactly what school is there to program children to believe through constant experience. That that's how things are. When you come into the world, you tend to accept that how it is is just how it is, it's just how things are here because you don't have the previous experience that people older have had. And what that meme says, the first one I read out, what school teaches children, this is what kids experience in school every day. Is it any wonder that so many adults see life in 
that way and see life in the way therefore that suits the system. And that's what education is all about. Article here about Brexit. This is in the Sun. This is an opinion piece and I don't necessarily agree with everything said in this article but there's some interesting points that come out of it. The World Cup hasn't unified us. The elite despise our England flag. There has been much heady media talk about how England's early World Cup success has brought the country together again. Come off it. Leave aside for a moment the small matter of Scotland and Wales adopting their usual anybody but England attitude. Well, I think football has tremendous potential to bring people together. Anyway, the article goes on. The divisions within England itself, which were laid bare by the battle over Brexit, have been highlighted once more by attitudes to the World Cup. On one side of the pitch stand the EU cheerleaders of the Remainer elites who recoil in horror from any sign of support for national sovereignty. They will celebrate every identity except the national one and fear the English football flag as a red and white right when such ball-headed racists into a post-match pogrom. On the other side stand the mass of largely working-class England fans. Millions of them voted leave in support of democracy and sovereignty and they fly the English flag because they love football, not fascism. The liberal media were soon expressing their own flag phobia. Well, I don't think that we have true democracy in this country. I've talked about that before. And democracy is just ruled by the majority anyway. But absolutely, people voted for democracy and sovereignty as opposed to being dictated to by the European Union, by a foreign body. The article goes on. One independent commentator observed that people like him wouldn't wave a flag because of the assumption that you fly the flag, you close our borders, take back control. I'm not racist, but Brexiteer who brushes away a tear at the first strains of the national anthem. Well, I don't have any time for the national anthem. It's not a national anthem anyway. It's an anthem to the monarch, to the queen. But he makes a good point with that last paragraph. The article goes on. And they talk about leavers exhibiting sweeping irrational prejudices. This is surely one reason why there were fewer England flags on show before this World Cup. It wasn't only about the understandably lowered expectations attached to the team, it was also about Brexit. A point that needs to be made on that is that I don't necessarily agree that every Remainer thinks that way. I'm sure some Remainers are cheering England on the World Cup, and others do think that way. But it's shades of grey, not black and white. The article goes on. The Remainer elites rely on a fantasy version of history which says they lost the EU referendum not because they lost the argument, but because of the wave of racism and xenophobia sweeping society. Well, that's a very good point. The reason many people voted to leave was because they could see what the European Union is and some of them are old enough to have had years of experience or decades of experience of the European Union and so they wanted to leave it. There's another reason as well, which I'll get to in a minute. The article goes on. No doubt if England continued to survive in the tournament, more public figures will try to jump on the popular bandwagon, but few would be fooled by such gestures. We know what they really think of us by now. Well, the further England go in the tournament, the more support there will be for them, and the more of a sense of national identity there will be, as people celebrate being English and England's progress in the World Cup. And if we win it, well, there's going to be an outbreak of people being proud to be English, and people being excited and glad about England's success. And the EU and the elite want the opposite of, of that outbreak of national identity. And this is why the progressives and the so-called liberals of the left are 
perfect for the elite's agenda. The so-called liberals on the left who talk about being liberal and wanting equality while acting like fascists to silence or attack any view on the people expressing those views they don't like. Doesn't mean everybody on the left is like that. Again, shades of grey. But those liberals who talk about being liberal, who identify with the left of politics, yet act like fascists to silence anything they don't like being said. What they don't realise, however, in their fake self-purity and self-righteousness is that because of their fake liberalism, people in this country and other countries where this mentality operates have had years of being silenced, of not having a voice and of not being listened to. And Brexit, in many ways, was a reaction to that, a way for people to make their voice heard finally. And so was the election of Donald Trump to become American president in what I would say was a misguided perception of what Trump is and what he's going to be while in office. Populism, as it's called, which is this reaction I'm talking about, has been driven and caused to a large extent by the progressives and the so-called liberals of the left, which are actually the new tyranny because of their attempts to destroy freedom of speech, but they don't realise they've actually caused what they're complaining about and railing against. The idea is to make people think these people are liberal and that they're about protecting minorities from abuse and criticism through political correctness. They're a wolf in sheep's clothing because they're the new tyranny, but people either think it's wrong to criticise the minorities or they're afraid to do so even if they think differently to the progressive mindset, the regressive mindset, as I would say, for fear of being called racist, xenophobic, sexist, etc. It's about using political correctness as a means to destroy freedom of speech and also as a cover for elite agendas like revisionist Zionism, transgender, migration, etc. Because of the further understanding that could come from those subjects being openly debated and all sides of the issue being discussed openly. Migration is an agenda. It's not a spontaneous occurrence. Nobody knew was coming that government was unprepared for and doesn't know how to deal with. It's an elite agenda to dissolve a sense of national identity and break down borders between countries. They want to change the face of European culture and European identity because that has to go for a world dictatorship, which is what they want in the end, unelected, to happen. It's about breaking down resistance to a world government dictatorship because of people coming together and standing together as a nation with a sense of culture and identity. You have to break that down if you want a world dictatorship, a world governing body, and that's why migration is happening. But political correctness is there to stop that being discussed, and that's why these so-called liberals are, while claiming to be liberal and about equality and liberalism are actually the new tyranny.